The Gospel reading comes from Mark 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Hey, Kevin. My name is Mike St. Dennis. I'm the associate pastor here at All Souls. It is good to be with you, especially those who are new and visiting with us this morning, whether you're uh, home from college, came with family, came for the baptism, or you're looking for a new church home, whatever has brought you here this morning. We are so glad to have you. Uh, this morning, we are going to look at Mark chapter 12 that Marlene just came and read from us. We've been a study of the book of Mark with for what seems like uh, decades, uh, but really has just been just over maybe two years. And next year at Easter Sunday, we will wrap up the study of Mark. We've been taking breaks along the way. We have another one coming up this summer, uh, beginning in June sometime. But as we've been going along, when we got to Easter and Holy Week of this year, just a month and a half ago, we also entered into Holy Week in the last week of Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark. And in this week, the week kicks off with the triumphal entry as Jesus is allowing the crowds to chant and proclaim who he is, Hosanna, the one who comes to Savior. Sometimes I like to tug on my microphone just to make sure it's working and that you guys are on, my, on your toes. All right, we'll just start over. All right. Holy Week. So Holy Week has begun, and then here we come to Tuesday. Jesus enters on Sunday. On Monday, he goes to the temple, turns over the tables, drives out the money changers, curses a fig tree, and then we get to... And the last 
several weeks, we've been in this Tuesday, uh, which we got to come up with some name for it. Uh, I recommend and submit Royal Rumble Tuesday. Now, if you paid any attention in the late 90s, uh, the World Wrestling Federation introduced to us, and I think it was actually earlier than that, the concept of the Royal Rumble. This is a wrestling match that begins with just a handful of competitors, but every couple of minutes, a new competitor is added to the match until as many as 30 different wrestlers participate. Each one then is, is uh, disqualified from the match, beaten, vanquished when they are cast over the rope until finally there's just one person remaining. And as we've looked at this week of Jesus and this Tuesday as it began in chapter 11, the religious leaders have come one after another to confront Jesus, to challenge him, to cast him out, to flip him over the edge, to turn the crowd against him. And one by one, through some theological jujitsu, Jesus has been victorious. And what I appreciate about the way we've gone through the last chapter and a half, and this is uh, an encouragement for us to read the Bible, not just selectively reading passages, but to read it through consecutively, is that you can see bigger themes being drawn out. So each challenge that has been brought to Jesus kind of stands on its own accord. And these are things that if you're around church for any bit of time, you can hear sermons on any one of these passages. Things like, what should we give to Caesar? Should we pay the tax? Um, to whose authority, by whose authority does Jesus work and minister and heal people and argue against the temple and the religious traditions? All kinds of different examples of how the people have come in trying to confront Jesus to catch him in a trap. But how do they get all united together? Like here in this passage where Jesus starts with this riddle about uh, is he his son or his grandfather or his uncle or his cousin who is this Messiah figure, this Lord? And then you have a warning against the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, and then it concludes with the widow's offering. How, how do these three stories fit together? Well, it, as we've seen on this Tuesday, each confrontation of Jesus, when they try to catch him into a trap, each one poses a question to him, trying to get him to out himself? Does he believe in the scriptures of the Old Testament? Is he faithful to the spiritual and supernatural things that it contains? Is he, is he so sold out on the supernatural realities that he's willing to put his life on the line against his political and cultural opposition? Or is he a pragmatist? Is he ready to just make the ordinary, useful, utilitarian choice? And in so doing, violate the scripture's supernatural sensibilities. Which one is he going to do? Jesus has refused the trap over and over again, refusing to separate the things of God, the mysteries of creation, the spiritual and supernatural realities that are promised in the Old Testament from the commands and the ordinary experiences of life. The crowd over and over again is amazed at his ability to do this. And last week we saw this, which may be one of the most famous confrontations, where Jesus is asked by one teacher of the law to choose the greatest commandment of all. And Jesus responds, 
The most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now here, once again, Jesus is doing that theological jujitsu. He refuses to play the game. The game that says what is more important to love God and to serve God or to love others, he says it's a bad question. It's a bad game to separate out the the sacred and the spiritual and the things of God from the things of God's creation, the ordinary things in our human experiences. Jesus refuses the sacred and secular divide. But it's not just the religious leaders that confront Jesus in this way. Because you and I do the same thing all the time. Pete Scazzaro in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality says, human beings have an uncanny ability to live compartmentalized double lives. Relegating God to Christian activities around church and our spiritual disciplines without thinking of him in the way we navigate our marriages or singleness. We discipline our children, spend our money, enjoy our recreation, or even study for exams. These things just fall below the radar of our spiritual consciousness. We pay no attention to them and live this subdivided life. Or as Ron Sider points out in the scandal of the evangelical conscience, Christians today are living scandalously unbiblical lives. The data about divorce rates, about giving and generosity, uh, about political matters, all this stuff shows that in many crucial areas, evangelicals don't live any differently from their unbelieving neighbors. We just sang a song where we said, God, we are not going to put you in a box. We're not going to reduce you down to something that we can grasp and make sense out of on our own. And yet, if you look back over your last week or the last month of your life, we will see these places of tension, the places between choosing the ordinary, choosing the pragmatic, choosing the things that fit in and can be celebrated or at least tolerated in our culture, and the spiritual things, the supernatural things, the greater testimony, and the hard bits that the gospel teaches Each one of us in our journey into spiritual, emotional, relational, financial, political maturity, whatever it is that we are growing in, that growth takes place when we take these two categories of things, the sacred and the secular, and we bring them together in Jesus. That's what I believe Jesus is getting at throughout this Royal Rumble Tuesday. And what he's getting at here in this passage in Mark chapter 12. Let's look at that together. So it begins in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, which is situating what we're about to read in all that's happened over the last chapter and a half, Jesus asks this curious riddle to the crowd. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? 
and the large crowd listened to him with delight. Now, the problem with this part of the passage is that the teaching that Jesus has here and the example that he uses fits very neatly into a first century honor-shame culture, but it doesn't fit into our world here in the 21st century in the West. You see, in an honor-shame culture, the patriarch, whoever kind of established the family name in the world, would not give honor to a descendant because it would bring about dishonor to themselves. And so they would maintain that, 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 that status and that standing of superiority. It really makes me chuckle, the, the idea like, I was trying to think of who it was, but one of the English monarchs became uh, sitting on the throne, and then the mother became the queen consort or something like that, and had to refer to the queen, I think it was Queen Elizabeth's mom. So Queen Elizabeth's own mom had to call her your royal majesty. And that makes sense to us now, or it doesn't. But in the first century in the ancient world, it wouldn't have made sense at all. And so Jesus asked the question, how is it, if this Messiah is the son of David, a descendant of David, how is it that David would give reverence, honor this Messiah figure? And what Jesus is getting at here is that maybe our categories, our understanding of the work of God, the salvation of God, the redemption of God, the Messiah that comes from God, the lineage of David, the kingdom of God, maybe our understanding of these things just isn't quite right. As one scholar points out, it is not that Jesus is here disputing what has been known for hundreds of years, that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah, from the descendants of David and Jesse. But rather what Jesus is saying is that maybe the Messiah is more than we give him credit for. Maybe he is more than just the son of David, more than just a king. Maybe he is the son of God sent to bring God's presence into the world. From the beginning of Mark's gospel in verse 1, it says that this is the good news, the gospel, the good message about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's been foretold about, who is the Son of God, come to save and deliver us. Come to free us not only in the spiritual sense, but also in the secular, everyday, ordinary experiences of sin and brokenness that we find ourselves in. And as Jesus has gone on in his ministry, he has been over and over again overturning the monolithic, one-dimensional thinking of both the audience around him, those who would challenge him, and all those who are in need. Jesus doesn't fit their categories. And here, there's a a little bit of a a history lesson that, that Stephen touched on a few weeks ago as well. When Jesus is responding to the religious leaders here, he keeps uh, confronting two different groups within uh, the religious world. And again, these were not just the religious leaders, but the political and cultural elites of their day. And the two groups were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And the Sadducees we don't know a ton about. We know that they were the ruling class. We know that they were in charge of the temple. We know that they accommodated the Roman authorities and that they made pragmatic choices. 
They fell on the secular divide of how they lived their life. In fact, one of the few uh, testimonies that we have about what it is that they believed uh, was this comment that they were kind of founded around. It says, why should we be servants who only serve according to the wages of our master? Instead, we ought to be like servants who give no thought to their wages. And the wages in this context was the idea of the supernatural, spiritual rewards that were promised in the rest of the Old Testament. And so rather than living in such a way where you are banking and counting on a spiritual reality, they said the rewards should just be the way that we treat one another now. Choosing to promote the rule of God, the the organization of their religion, the pious practices and activities, things like giving to the temple work like we see here in the passage. But to do all of this without, without any allegiance to anything more than the tangible world we can feel and see and reason out every day. Jesus is saying, don't you see that there is more going on in this world than what you can see? that there's a greater reality at work. And then, against the Sadducees in that first part, the second time he turns his attention towards the Pharisees, a group he had called a brood of vipers and said were like a whitewashed tomb. They look good on the outside because of their pious activity, because of their allegiance to the sacred and the spiritual, and yet on the inside they were dead. It says, as Jesus taught, he said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. So whereas the Sadducees fell on the sacred side of the line... The Pharisees were guilty of falling on the spiritual side, promoting their religion and piety, but caring not for what they did with other people. Not not treating others fairly, exploiting here the widows and the orphans that they were sent to minister to. Jesus says, watch out for them. That their pious religious activity and dedication, the honor and respect that they receive from others, the reputation that they that they taunt, flout around, is hiding and masking an inner, darker reality. One that falls on the sake of the supernatural without any care for the way that they treat others. So friends, where is it that you draw the line in your life? What are the things that you give over to God and the things that you hold back for yourself? The hard truths of Scripture that just we can't make sense out of and we choose to follow the world's understanding instead. What are the things in the world where we're holding on to our own narrative about what these things mean and what it's like and what we ought to do rather than opening ourselves up to what God is leading us towards? Jesus refuses to fall for this sacred and secular divide. And instead, he gives us an example here in the widow. Beginning in verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, 
But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, or as the original language says, put in her whole life, all she had to live on. In contrast with the the political and the religious elite of his day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the power brokers, those who were esteemed and thought well of, those who lived in luxury and those who exploited others, Jesus gives us the example of this widow. A widow who perhaps was one whose house was devoured by the others comes and rather than withholding from God, living out of her, her, her pain and her fear and her disadvantage, she gives all that she has her whole life over to God. It says that these others gave only out of their abundance, only out of their luxury, only out of things that they wouldn't really feel uh, the effects of, the cost of. They only did what they could manage in the space of their margin. But this woman, who was left with not only two coins, but two small coins, gave all that she had. The only offering that would have been less is if instead of the two coins... She had one. And Jesus, getting the attention of the disciples, listen to this. He draws the disciples in and says, truly this woman gave more than everyone else. The standard that we see in the New Testament and throughout Scripture is that God doesn't Look upon us and see us for what we give to him. The amount that we give, how much time, how much of our emotional capacity, how many of our relationships, our work life, our goals, our values, our priorities, our money. He doesn't look and see how much we gave and become impressed with us. He looks to see how much we held on to. How much we kept out where we drew the lines to say, God, you can have all of this, but I need this for myself. I need this to maintain my security, my hope, my sense of glory, my reputation. I need this because what if I run out of money next week? What if I run out of time? What if people stop caring for me in the ways that I need? But this woman here gave her whole life. Her success, her means, her resources, her failure, her pain, everything was brought to Jesus. Nothing was left out. Again, the journey of following Jesus is bringing more and more because for you and I, we overlook all kinds of places in our life that we just haven't brought to him yet. This is why we need the church and need relationships with one another to take these ideas and these values that have been uh, built and formed inside of us and bring them to Jesus and to say, is this right? Is this the way? What would you do with this? My success or my failure, my gifts or my limits to bring all of who we are to him. But there's something in this passage that if we don't see, we're going to miss everything. 
Because Jesus is not just giving us a good example to follow here. He's not just pointing out the failures of the religious and ruling class and promoting this woman and commending her alone. But when he says that she put in her whole life and gave her whole self and put all of who she is on the line, he foreshadows what he will do just a few days later. Philippians 2 says that when it came to time to give, Jesus did not hold back. Not even equality with God, the eternal riches and security and privilege and status that he had known. He gave everything, emptying himself. Putting everything that he has in on the line to overcome the divide between the spiritual, supernatural, eternal, and the everyday sin and brokenness of the world. God came near. to bring wholeness out of these two, to give of himself everything that he has, that we might come to him. You see, friends, there's all kinds of places where we don't really get what Jesus is up to. There's all kinds of things in our life where we are still living in this divide. There is more room to give but we cannot fix or change ourselves just out of sheer guilt or shame or out of pride. That's what we see here in this passage that Jesus is saying, there is more going on here and do you see it? And so if we want to be a people who live generously, who live wholeheartedly, who live into that better, truer story of the greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor, to give all of ourself to be renewed. We have to see first what he has given to us. That he didn't hold back. But emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant. And being found in human form. He humbled himself in obedience. Even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And that at his name. Every knee will bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the Son of David and the Son of God who has come and given Himself so that you and I became sons and daughters of the King. What do you need to give over to Him today? And more importantly, do you see what He has given to you? Let's pray. God, we confess that there are all kinds of things that we hold back just because we're not sure we're not sure that we can trust you yet. We're not sure what it is, the, what faithfulness looks like in a situation. We're not sure that others are ready to hear or see if we live out of the faith and trust in who you are. But God, we confess that all of this world, all of who we are and all who we are not, belongs to you. Would you help us to turn these things over to you this day as a joyful response of praise and thanksgiving for all that you have given to us. And God, may we, out of that place of joy and thanksgiving, go to love and serve the world around us, to give all that we have for your sake, for your glory and for our joy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.